Well, every blessing to you all and welcome back to my open air pulpit. A very snowy, a very fresh and breezy January morning. For those that care to know, it is minus three degrees Celsius. So this will be the coldest January morning so far this year. Let's continue to work through the Word of God, looking at the subject of the Trinity, the relationship concerning the Father and the Son for this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, look at verse 8, if you will. Now therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheepcote, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. So the context is first and foremost aimed at David, a literal Jew, a literal king, over a literal people, over a literal country, kingdom, dominion. And like many kings, if not all of the kings, back in the Old Testament, they are types of the Messiah in the Messianic line. The flip side to that, of course, is the non-Messianic kings, the non-rulers, for the most part Gentiles, like Nimrod, perhaps, or Pharaoh, or Ahab to some extent. Fast forward into the New Testament, Herod and Pilate are types of the Antichrist. And here the Lord, being the triune Lord, called the Lord of Hosts, from verse 8, is aiming this specifically at David. I took thee from the sheepcote, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. Micah 5, 2 says the Messiah is of old from everlasting, and he be ruler, governor, over the people of the Lord. Also David was a literal shepherd in Bethlehem, was born in Bethlehem. The Lord Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. And David was a literal shepherd, shepherding literal sheep. The Lord Jesus Christ is called the Good Shepherd. And the Good Shepherd, according to John chapter 10, will lay his life down for his sheep. A quick footnote, the sheep referred to and found very clearly over in John chapter 10 are Jews and Gentiles. First and foremost, the Lord is speaking to the Jews because he was their Messiah. He was a son of Israel from the tribe of Judah, of course, and he came to die for his sheep in the context Israel. Also from John chapter 10, he says he has other sheep that are not yet of his fold. And the Mormons believe that is in reference to them. They are wrong, of course. It is in reference to the Gentiles, the church. So the Lord lays down his life for the sheep, Jew and Gentile, not just for the elect. Unfortunately, the Calvinists have never really got that clear. The Lord Jesus Christ, just for the record, died for the sins of the whole world. 1 John chapter 2, and he also died for those that would reject him. 2 Peter 2, 1. So here, ruler over my people, over Israel, double application, first and foremost aimed at David, pre-Christ obviously, a good thousand years before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. But behind David is a greater David. And of course, the greater David is the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, And I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest, I will never leave you, nor forsake you, Almighty God, never deserted the Lord Jesus Christ. Almighty God, from the beginning to the end, was always with the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Lord was hanging on a cross, he would say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In reference to the Lord Jesus Christ becoming a sin offering. And as far as I can think, as of right now, that's the only moment where the father would turn away from his only begotten son. But from the beginning of his ministry, right up 
and to the end of his ministry. The Father was with him, the Father was inside of him. Paul told you from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 how God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. And last week I made the case how the Holy Ghost was also with the Lord Jesus Christ concerning his miracles, of course. So it was a triune effort. The Father, the Son and the Spirit all coming together to make his uh, mission a great success. But in the context, this is aimed at David. And I was with thee, singular pronoun, whithersoever thou wentest, and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great name, like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. Well, the Lord came the first time, and he turned the other cheek, and of course they slapped him, pulled out his beard, spat at him, and he would tell the apostles and vicariously the church to forgive your enemies. He would say to go the extra mile. If your brother needs a coat, give it to him. If your enemy needs this, or if your enemy needs that, give it to them. But here, David, of course, is a king, and a king has to rule. A king has to have authority. A king has to be in the driving seat. And that's why the Lord has been very gracious to the Jews for their entire history. As of right now, if you look at Israel, you've got around 6 million Jews, or thereabouts, surrounded <coughs> by 200 million plus, or 250 million on average, Mohammedans, Muslims, and on paper you know that if 250 million Muslims all came together and united and marched on Israel, they would sink. But of course it's not as simple as that, because the Lord is protecting the Jews, going back to his love for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Also, like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth, and, uh, and how he's made him a great name, at the name of Jesus, every head will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. King David, at his prime, was a very powerful Jew. I think from memory Solomon had more geographical land for a period of time because the Lord allowed him to have a period of rest. Of course, at the end, of Solomon's life, he got into idolatry and the worship not only of other gods but of other women. Moreover, verse 10, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. So from the beginning, of the birth of the children of Israel. Moses was their commander-in-chief and on many occasions he was trying to get into or he was trying to pass through certain lands to get to the promised land and he was refused entrance on many occasions. The Jews had to fight and of course the land of Canaan became the promised land. There were people that were living in Canaan and the Lord said they're all Gentiles, uncircumcised, unclean, unholy heathen, kick them out. And of course, once they started to do that, they made many enemies. Throughout the history of the world, the Jews have been hated, despised. One of the first things that Oliver Cromwell did when he became the Lord Protector was to reach out to the Jews that were living overseas to come back to Britain. And they started to return to Britain during his lifetime. Many more would follow after his death, of course. But around that time, they had been expelled from Britain, uh, Portugal, Spain, and most of Europe. 
And that's where we get the term the wandering Jew. Of course, one of the reasons why the Jews have been dispersed multiple times, pre and post the Babylonian captivity, was due to their sins, sin of idolatry, not following Jehovah. Verse 11, And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, going back to 1 Samuel chapter 8, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies. Well, not yet, they haven't. If you live in Israel today, you are on 24 hours notice, 24 hour notice to move. The IDF are able to strike anywhere within four hours. There's no peace in Israel as of right now. If it wasn't for almighty God protecting them and blessing them via countries like Britain, America and Germany, they would sink. There's no peace for the Jew yet. And even during the life of David, peace was limited. Only later on would they get to enjoy a limited period of peace, of course. And of course, he'd arrest from all thine enemies. Well, it won't happen just yet, but it will during the millennial reign, of course. Also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee an house. The house of Moses, contrast that to the house of the Messiah. Hebrews chapter 3, you're either affiliated to the house of the Messiah, or you're affiliated to the house of Moses. Now let me say this very briefly. For the church, we refer to the Lord Jesus Christ as the Saviour, not as the King of the Church. The King of the Jews, as he was referred to back in the Gospels, is in reference to Israel, of course. He's never once called the King of the Church. He's called the King of the Jews. He's not called the Saviour of Israel. He's called the Saviour of the Church. So you've got to be careful when you get into terms and terminology. But here, the house, the house of David, denotes a position, a station. It denotes a uh, description of one's abode, one's standing, if you will. Back in the Old Testament, if you were in the house of David, you would enjoy great privileges, great respect, going back to anyone's kingdom, any kingdom, any throne or dominion. It could be Henry VIII, it could be Cromwell, it could be Elizabeth I, it could be Queen Victoria, it could be the Tsar of Russia, it could be uh, King Louis of France, it could be anyone anywhere at any time. If you were affiliated, if you were a member, if you were in somehow connected to a royal kingdom, you had authority. Well, back in the Old Testament, to be part of David's household meant you were very close to the king, obviously. But on top of that, to be in the house of the Lord, uh, verse 11, meant you were part of the Old Testament covenant. And when thy days be fulfilled, verse 12, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. So again, it's aimed at David first and foremost. Behind David is the Lord Jesus Christ. David was a literal king who had a literal son. Jesus Christ is a literal king who has spiritual sons. And of course, we are his spiritual sons if we are born again. Look at 12 again. And when thy days be fulfilled, when the Lord Jesus Christ dies, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, he went into the tomb, I will set up thy seed after thee, the church, which shall proceed out of thy bowels. Now here, not physically, but spiritually, but for David, this will be physically. And I will establish his kingdom, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is spiritual, for today. The kingdom of God is spiritual, whereas the kingdom of heaven will one day be literal. David was a literal Jew on a literal throne, 
in a literal kingdom governing a literal people. And the same will be true concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel. One day he will return and he will rule over the new earth and also rule via New Jerusalem. 13. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Going back to Luke chapter 1, he will be called the son of the highest and he will rule over the house of Jacob, over the house of Israel forever. Hasn't happened yet. He came the first time. Some of the Jews believed on him, but most have rejected him. He turned to the apostles, all Jewish of course, they preached to the Jews, and by the middle part, the middle part to the book of Acts, <coughs> you've got thousands that are saved, but there were millions of Jews in the Roman Empire around that time that were not saved. And of course they start to preach to the Jews, being Jews themselves, it's always easier for a saved Jew to witness to Jews, and they were uh, rejected like the Lord Jesus Christ was, and they turned to the Gentiles. Some Peter would go to Cornelius, a Gentile, but ultimately it would fall to Paul. It would fall to Paul to go to the Gentiles, to witness to them going back to have other sheep that are not yet of this fold. So the kingdom is going to be eternal. But again, this is speaking about, first of all, David's kingdom, which was temporarily lost back over in Jeremiah. And the king has got into such a mess, such wickedness and, and apostasy, that the Lord said, this line is cursed, being the line of Judah. And the way to get around that problem, because one day David, like here, is going to produce a son, not Solomon, but the son of God. How is it going to be possible? How can the Son of God come from the line of Judah because the line of Judah has been cursed. Found very clearly in Jeremiah, and that's where the virgin birth comes into place and comes into play, of course. 13. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So it's going to be physical and it's going to be spiritual. David gets a physical kingdom, obviously, so too does Solomon, right up until the end of the first century when they start to go further into apostasy they lose more of their land they are surrounded by more gentiles the lord jesus christ arrives preaches the gospel to them like i say some believe on him but most don't the kingdom of god for now is spiritual the lord jesus christ is reigning over the church in a spiritual sense for now but one day he will rule and reign in a physical sense don't be foolish to dismiss these verses, to spiritualize these verses, because you can't understand these verses or you don't want to, is no alibi, no justification for uh, dismissing them and missing out on a great blessing. Look at verse 14. I will be his father and he shall be my son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. If he commits iniquity, not the Lord Jesus Christ, but Solomon would, I will chasten him with a rod of men. And yet the Lord was whipped physically, picturing substitutionary atonements. I will chasten him with a rod of men, what Solomon was, multiple times. But the Lord didn't need to be chastened, and yet it says over in Isaiah how it pleased the Lord to bruise him. And with the stripes of the children of men, he was whipped uh, in our place, but by his stripes we are healed. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. So he takes the kingdom from Saul. I believe Saul, just for the record, was a saved Jew. 
a saved man, but Saul lost his kingdom, lost his authority due to not following Jehovah, going back to how you are saved in spite of yourself, not because of yourself. Saul, I believe, was a saved man, as was David and Solomon, but stopped following the Lord, went off and did, uh, went off and did his own thing, and as a result of that, the Lord obviously warned him vicariously via a Samuel to get back into fellowship with him. He wouldn't do so. And there are several men in the New Testament, like Alexander and Hymenius from memory, and John Mark to some extent, and Alexander the coppersmith perhaps, and a few others that start walking with the Lord. And also Diotrephus from 3 John. And those guys stopped walking with the Lord, became apostates. That's what an apostate is. First of all, somebody who backslides and continues to backslide. That is what an apostate is. And also somebody who wants held to a position and then turns from it and either publicly rejects it or privately rejects it while giving the impression that they still believe it. That's also a hypocrite, of course. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul. So the Lord would put up with Solomon, and he would for many a year. Saul was killed. If you go back to the account of Saul, a very sad end to a very promising man. Saul began good, but ended bad. Where Saul of Tarsus began bad and ended good. And King Saul had a lot of potential, could have done great things for the Lord. His name could have been found over in Hebrews chapter 11. It's not, of course. That doesn't mean he wasn't saved. I believe he was saved, but the mercy in the context isn't his salvation, which most Armenians believe it's in reference to his standing. It was in reference, and it would be in reference to his position. He lost the kingdom. He lost his throne. He lost the land. He lost, as I say, his name uh, being put into uh, Hebrews chapter 11, but as far as I'm aware, he didn't lose his soul. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. So that's either true or it's not. The Lord is not a man that he should lie, neither is a man that he should repent. Let God be true and every man a liar. When he speaks about something, he will bring it to pass. It may take 2,000 years, it may take 3,000 years, it may take 4,000 years, it may take 5,000 years. But mark my words, it will come to pass. So verse 8, in the context, the Lord is speaking to King David, a literal Jew from the tribe of Judah, but behind David is another Jew, the Lord Jesus Christ, from the tribe of Judah. David is referred to as a shepherd. The Lord Jesus Christ is referred to as the good shepherd. David would defend his sheep, and on one occasion even kill an animal that was attempting to interfere with his sheep. The Lord Jesus Christ would lay down his life for the sheep, David is referred to as a ruler over my people, over Israel, so too is the Messiah, Micah 5.2. Uh, verse 9, the Lord was with David from the beginning to the end. The Lord was with Jesus from the beginning to the end, excluding that point on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The sinless Son of God becomes a sin offering. All of the sins of the world were poured out on the Lord Jesus Christ. He would taste death for every man for the first time in his 33 and a half years. He knew what sin was. 
And that's what Hebrews is all about, how he's able to help those that come to him. Being very God and very man. And I spent years making the point that no other religion can come anywhere near this. All of the other religions hope to reach heaven if they do this or do that, but they don't know it for sure. None of their gods ever became humans. None of their gods ever emptied themselves of their deity, would be born as a human, would live as a human, die as a human, and take the sins of the world upon themselves for their own creation. That's what makes Christianity so special. And that's what the Word of God says, we are a peculiar people, meaning a special people. Also from verse 9, he's going to give David a great name, like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. And of course, David was a very popular and powerful king in Israel. Today, the Jews still see him as their greatest king, and he certainly was. But Solomon was even more uh, successful, even more famous. The Queen of Sheba would go to visit David, and for memory, I think only 13 words describe her visit to Solomon, and yet they've made many movies about Solomon and Sheba being secret lovers is possible, but the Word of God doesn't tell you that. He was a very wealthy man, Solomon. The blessings of the Lord. The Jews are a blessed people. They may be unsaved, they may be lost, they may be hell-bound, but they are still a blessed people. Not because of themselves, but in spite of themselves. But ultimately, going back to the promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of course, the great name, uh, and also going back to the name of the great men that are in the earth, it will feed into the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus means Jehovah saves, Christ means the anointed, the Messiah, and of course, Lord denotes his deity. So these verses, time after time, have a much deeper meaning, and if people just read them and allow them to speak for themselves, they get a great blessing. Uh, verse 10. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, like Jerusalem, for centuries, Old Testament, New Testament, post the New Testament, the Jews have been on the move. It wasn't just Hitler that would persecute the Jews, so too would Stalin and other despots around the world. But ultimately, this is leading up to, first of all, Jerusalem in the physical sense, but also New Jerusalem in the spiritual sense. Plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Going back to the thousand-year reign, which I said a few moments ago, neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. So at the moment, their state, the standing or the state of Israel is a precarious one. Like I say, six million Jews surrounded by over 200 million Muslims. The world, the media and the devil are very much against Israel. Israel can't do anything right and when she does something wrong the the, uh, the media are all over israel like a rash and yet you look at any islamic country or some of the concentration camps in north korea or parts of china or parts of africa almost no media attention but if the jew says something or does something negative the media like to uh blow it up and really make an issue out of it uh, as since the time that i commanded judges to be over my people israel verse 11 and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies. Well, not yet. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't come to destroy people at the first advent. He would turn the other cheek. He would go the extra mile. He would persevere 
not only with unbelieving Jews, but sometimes his unbelieving apostles. There are several conversations in the Gospels where they too weren't always sure about him. And on one occasion they were saying, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? The Lord was a very persevering and very patient father because the Lord Jesus Christ is Israel's everlasting father, going back to Isaiah chapter 9. Not God the Father, of course, but Israel's everlasting father. And when thy days shall be fulfilled, in the context concerning David, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, going back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I will set up thy seed after thee, like Solomon, but in type, the church, which shall proceed out of thy bowels. Paul speaks about begetting uh, some people in the uh, epistles, like 1 Corinthians chapter 4, from memory, I have begotten you, meaning I've given life to you in a spiritual sense. The Lord allows those of us to get people saved to enjoy some of the credits. And when a person gets saved on your watch, you are their spiritual father. If you are a man, of course, or if you are a woman, I guess you are their spiritual mother. Well, that's got to be limited and that has to be carefully uh, explained in the context. We don't call people priests or father. We don't call people mother or mother superior. We don't get into titles and names. But Paul, as an apostle, Paul as a man, when he got people saved, he was their spiritual father. That's as far as you can go with that. Out of thy bowels, here in a physical sense, but for the Lord Jesus Christ, in a spiritual sense, because we are the spiritual children of the Lord Jesus Christ, sons of God. But also, in reference to Israel, those Jews that believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, they too become his spiritual children. And I will establish his kingdom. So for David, it was a physical kingdom. For here and now, it's a spiritual kingdom. The kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. The Lord Jesus Christ is ruling from heaven. We don't see him. One day we will. Every eye will see him, according to Revelation chapter 1. They'll be weeping and mourning when they see him coming back in reference to the world, not in reference to the church. The church is listening out for sound. We are looking for the Son of God. We're not looking for the Son of Satan. He shall build a house for my name, in the context, physical Israel, physical Davidic kingdom, but in type, the body of Christ, the church age, if you will, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Luke chapter 1 says it's going to be literal, and he will rule forever, but for now he's ruling via heaven in a spiritual sense. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with a rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. Going back also to once saved, always saved. Solomon would sin horrifically, as would Saul, as would uh, most, in fact, of the Old Testament kings. Even David had many wives and concubines. People think it was just that one-off evening with Bathsheba that got him into trouble. He stayed with Bathsheba and had Solomon with Bathsheba. And it says how the Lord loved Solomon. He had other sons and daughters. David had many children. And the Lord looked at David, Solomon, and Saul, and others, and said, well, I'm going to spare them everlasting hell, not for their sakes, but for my sake. Because if you're not careful, the devil will get all of the glory. If we all got what we deserved, we'd all go to hell, and the devil would look back at that and say, he couldn't keep his own people saved. He couldn't protect his own people. So therefore, to stop the devil getting all of the glory, that's what eternal security is all about, to keep the saved saved.
be his father. He should be my son. If he commits iniquity, I would chasten him with a rod of men like Solomon. And others down the line, the Lord Jesus Christ was whipped, not for himself, but for us. And with the stripes of the children of men, but my mercy, my grace, his everlasting salvation, if you will, shall not depart from him. I will destroy him in a physical sense. I will put him to death in a physical sense. I think Solomon died less than 70 years of age. Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5, were cut down in their prime for lying to the Holy Ghost. But they were still saved, I believe. 1 Corinthians 11 says there were Christians, there were Christians in Corinth that were sick, weak, and some were sleeping, like in Jesus, not lost and burning in hell. They were saved, but they lost their right to live, their privilege to live, and the Lord cut them down in their prime. My mercy shall not depart away from him, Solomon, but in type, the church, those that are going to get saved, believing on the greater David. As I take it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. So Saul loses his kingdom. He loses his life, but not his soul. Uh, verse 16, And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. So one day this will happen. The greatest theme, the greatest message, the main point of the Bible is about a king and a kingdom. Go to Psalm chapter 2, please. So David, tribe of Judah, a shepherd. Jesus, tribe of Judah, a shepherd. David has a son. The Lord Jesus Christ has sons and daughters. When David's son sinned, and he did, he was chastised he was whipped sometimes in a physical sense but mainly in a spiritual sense the Lord would raise up enemies against uh, Solomon to chastise him to keep him in line when Christians sin we are chastened we are chastised according to the book of Hebrews but we don't lose our salvation we are saved in spite of ourselves not because of ourselves the kingdom of God is for here and now, spiritual, but one day it will be literal. One day the Lord Jesus Christ will be back on planet Earth, ruling and reigning from Jerusalem. And, and uh, you can be sure that David will no doubt be there, and possibly Joseph and some of the other top Jews back in the Old Testament. Of course, all of the believing Jews, going back to the first Jew that got saved back in Genesis, right up until the last Jew that got saved, probably John the Baptist, around that time, will be resurrected to be on the new earth with the Lord Jesus Christ. Whereas New Jerusalem is for the body of Christ. Psalm chapter 2, Psalm chapter 2, look at verse 1. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Simon Peter quotes this from Acts chapter 4. And it's very interesting when you think about Acts chapter 4, because you've got Simon Peter being interrogated uh, by unbelieving Jews. In fact, go to Acts chapter 4 and he's being interrogated and in Acts uh, chapter 4 he obviously quotes uh, Psalm chapter 2 and uh, when I read this or went through this some years ago uh, verse by verse I thought how interesting. Uh, Acts chapter 4 Acts chapter 4, should have marked this. Uh, look at verse 24. And when they heard that 
they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which hast made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David hast said, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Now in the context, if you go back to verse uh, 23, and being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. They are referring to the chief priests and elders as heathen. Heathen. Almighty God looked at the Jews back in the first century that rejected the Lord Jesus Christ as heathen. Yes, they were physical descendants from Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, but they weren't spiritually Jews. Their hearts were dead. Going back to Adam, right up until the second Adam, or Adam, right up until Genesis, uh, uh, John chapter 3, excuse me, John chapter 3, when the Lord spoke to Nicodemus and said, you must be born again. Everybody from Adam up until Nicodemus, if you will, were spiritually dead. Their spirits were dead. The new birth, strictly speaking, is a New Testament revelation. But Peter quotes Psalm 2, and go back to Psalm 2, and he says that the Jews, the leaders, are heathen. What a put down. But it's true. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? So when David wrote this as a Jew, he's looking, obviously, forward to a future time, a future point in time, whether or not he saw the Sanhedrin and other Jewish leaders in the first century rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ isn't clear, but he's aiming this at Gentiles. And then Peter picks us up, Acts chapter 4, and aims us at the apostate Jews and calls them heathen. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. We shan't have this man to reign over us. We have only one king being Caesar, he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. He's going to mock them. He's going to mock them. Can you imagine the Lord laughing in your face? Imagine being in hell for 100 million years and the Lord is laughing from heaven. And after four, five, six billion years or 500 billion years, if there's such a figure, after burning, of course, hell goes on forever. Every so often, when it pleases the Lord, he laughs from heaven, and you're burning in hell. That's what's going on here. The Lord is laughing, he's mocking. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord, triune God, of course, shall have them in derision. Who's them? Those that would refuse the Lord Jesus Christ. Those that would reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 4, especially, also going into the tribulation. Those that take the mark of the beast, those that die without Christ, and go off into hell forever. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath, and vex them in his sore displeasure. Probably at the great white throne judgments before they are sent to hell forever. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. In the context, King David, because David wrote this, going back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is building. This is building. But behind David is a greater David. I will declare the decree in time, not before time. Contrary to what Calvinists would have you believe, this decree was decreed in time, not before the foundation of the world. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Yahweh, Jehovah, 
hath said unto me, David is speaking, but behind David is the Messiah, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Now we get into incarnational sonship, generational sonship or eternal sonship versus incarnational sonship. A very controversial and tricky subject and I've been looking at this very carefully over the last few days but let's just stick with the context for now. David is in the context. David is the king of Israel on the holy hill of Zion but of course from David will come Solomon, from Solomon will come the saviour. The Lord Jehovah hath said unto me, the Lord hath said unto David, but in type, Jehovah, Yahweh, has said unto Jesus, or the word of God, if you will, thou art my son, you are my son, this day have I begotten thee. Well, of course, at this point in this revelation being revealed, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the Messiah of Israel, hadn't yet arrived. We are a thousand years back a thousand years BC and here this is aimed at David in reference to his ruling and reigning as a king, his kingship if you will. This will feed into the Lord's Messiahship. Ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Now this has a very limited application as far as David is concerned. David was a Jew, as would be Solomon and his son, and all of David's sons, literal sons and daughters, literal daughters, and his wives, as far as I can recall, as of this morning, they were all Jews. You may have had the occasional or the exceptional Gentile that would be a part of David's court, perhaps, but for the most part David was a Jew, ruling over the Jews, not, not over the Gentiles, but the Messiah, He's king over the church, and the church historically has been mainly Gentile. Ask of me, this is aimed at the Son of God, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. So, first and foremost, it has a reference to the church age, obviously, but this is also going to go into the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, and thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel, not for the first coming. When the Lord came the first time, like I say, he was beaten, he was slapped about, spat on, cursed, blasphemed, ridiculed, mocked, and he took it. He took it every single time, and that's something which Christians don't always like to uh, do or experience when it comes to their own relationship with the Lord. A lot of Christians don't like to suffer like that or be humiliated. But at the second advent, according to Psalm 110, he will personally and also uh, Revelation 19 execute people cut people's heads off be wise now therefore O ye kings be instructed ye judges of the earth so you could suggest this for the church age there are some Christian rulers uh, in a sense that are in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ if you look at the continent in Europe during the dark ages all of the kings on the continent, were either Catholic or Protestants, so there's some application to those people. But also, this goes back to David as a king. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, David, Solomon, and others, be instructed, ye judges of the earth, those that are going to rule 
Like when Moses was told to pick out leaders over thousands, hundreds, fifties, so on and so forth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Kiss the sun, worship the sun, lest to be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. You put your trust in David. Back in the Old Testament, you were in good standing with the Lord because the Lord chose David to be his king, to be his anointed, if you will. If you put your faith, or if you do put your faith in the greater David, you are saved and kept saved. So Psalm 2, as far as I'm concerned, once again has double application. The heathen raged the people. Imagine a vain thing in the context aimed at the Sanhedrin, Acts chapter 4. Historically Jews, and yet are referred to as heathen. In Schofield's reference Bible, he says that the Jews that lived during the time of the Lord Jesus Christ were Ishmaelites, not Isaacites. An interesting thought. I caught a video last night of a famous, famous American rabbi who travels the world. Very interesting to watch, and I enjoy watching him. Not a believer, of course. Quite hostile to what I believe as a Christian, but I still appreciate what he says and his knowledge of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And he was doing a phone-in, and a Muslim phoned up his show. It was very interesting to watch. He was in Jakarta, the capital of Indonesia, and this Muslim phoned in and said to the rabbi, he said, why don't you believe that Muhammad was a prophet? And he gave a very long-winded answer, but he said a couple of interesting things. He said, first of all, we are family, meaning the Jew and the Muslim. And that was an interesting statement for him to make because we aren't family as far as the Jews or the Muslims are concerned. And he said this, he said, well, in Jakarta, we have a mosque, excuse me, we have a synagogue, we have a synagogue, and in our synagogue, we have a room where our Muslim friends are invited to come and pray five times a day to Allah. And he, you know, he thought it was a very good idea. He was very impressed with that. And I thought, that's a breach. That's a breach of the Old Testament. If you live back in the Old Testament and you were affiliated with the Gentiles, worshipping with the Gentiles, that's where Solomon got into so much trouble. You are an apostate, put to death. This goes back to rabbinical Judaism. This Orthodox Jew, very religious Jew, will claim to be following what I'm reading this morning, and yet he's not really. He's following the rabbis, the rabbis' interpretation of the Old Testament. But he said, we are family, and I thought this is very interesting because for the church, or for the Gentile, we aren't related to the Jews, nor are we related to the Muslims. The Muslims are perhaps Arabic, or Arab, shall we say, and if you are Arab, or if you are an Arab, although technically that is a Gentile, we have no direct relation to Arabs, and if we are saved Christians, Gentile for the most part, we have no relationship to the Jews. You see, Abraham had two sons, Isaac, and Ishmael. The Jews, whether they believe or not, can go back to Isaac, but for the Muslims, they go back to Ishmael. So he's partly right when he says we are family, but the church isn't related to the Jews in a physical sense, nor to the Muslims in a physical sense. Kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. 
get rid of King David, we don't want him. A mutiny, if you will, get rid of the greater David. We don't need him. Let's have a council. <clears throat> Let's put this guy on, uh, on the cross. Let's put him to death. We don't want this guy to rule over us. We got a good deal with the Romans. And as a result, he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> the Lord shall have them in derision. Running around like headless chickens. What is going on? It's 70 AD. The temple has been destroyed. There's been a great earthquake. Some of the Old Testament saints have been resurrected. Could have been Joshua. Could have been uh, David. Unlikely, but it could have been some of the Old Testament greats. Could have been Joseph. Could have been Manasseh. Could have been Ephraim. And they're running around in a panic. What's going on? We've lost yet another temple. What is wrong with us? The first temple went down thanks to a Gentile, Nebuchadnezzar. The second temple has gone down thanks to another Gentile, being Titus. But this is also a reference to, I think, those that are going to go to hell. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath, in his anger, and vex them in his sore displeasure. You rejected my only begotten son. Who do you think you are? No one will ever love you more than my only begotten son. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Church age, from the uh, crucifixion, the ascension, right up until the rapture, from the rapture to the marriage supper of the Lamb, back to the new earth, thousand year reign, the Lord gets it, or he gets two blessings, if you will. He's blessed in two different ways. He gets the church for the church age, and he gets those of us which are going to be in New Jerusalem, but he also gets the new earth, where the resurrected Jew is going to be. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Anybody that challenges the Lord Jesus Christ during the thousand years of his ruling and reigning, on the new earth will be put to death it'll be brutal quite honestly and yet even with the devil chained up and the lord on the earth people are still going to be born are going to be expected to be saved obviously they will still sin hence why there'll be sacrifices and people are going to need to stay in fellowship with the lord during the thousand year reign of his ruling and reigning, and people are going to need to be saved. But sin, sin, sin is still going to be prevalent, present, because we are all born in original sin. We all have the problem of Adam's sin and rebellion and rejection. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. You could say this, that the kings and the judges could be like Caiaphas, Ananias, Herod, Pilate, they were all allowed to serve and rule and reign at the Lord's good pleasure. Daniel tells us how the kings of the earth are raised up due to his permissive will and put down, overthrown. That's why you are told, and you were told over in uh, Romans 13, to pray for your leaders. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Relevance. For the Old Testament, relevant for today. 
kiss the sun, worship the sun, lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Appropriate the atonement. Get yourself saved. Submit to King David for the Old Testament. Submit to King Jesus for the New Testament. Blessed, happy are all they that put their trust in him. Saved by believing on him. Rejected by not believing on him. Kept saved by trusting in him. Damned for not trusting in him. Go to John chapter 1, please. John chapter 1. Look at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Beginning meaning time. John doesn't say in the beginning of time was the Son. He says in the beginning being time was the Word. And how the Word was with God, like intimacy, like face to face. And the Word was God, the same being the Word was in the beginning with God. So John is dealing with the beginning of time. Going back to Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Go to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, look at verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, denoting the beginning of his ministry, not the beginning of time. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way, before thee. Go back to John chapter 1. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, dealing with time. Now John 17 says that the Son enjoyed fellowship, glory with the Father before the foundation of the world, which denotes the reality that the Son of God or the Word of God goes back a long way with the Father. But when you get into eternal sonship it gets very problematic because eternal sonship teaches quite simply this that the son of god as the son of god is eternal and so too is the father as god the father of course that is difficult to comprehend i won't say it's impossible because with god nothing is impossible going back to what i said last week that if god wanted to be three parts he could be so it's plausible but in that sense it's not probable because there's nothing in scripture to suggest that god is three parts only three persons but when we get back to the subject of eternal sonship yes it's plausible that the son is eternal as is the father and of course he's called the father because he is the creator of all things he's called the father of israel the father of spirits the father of the angels the father of life so it's possible that the son is eternal and so too is the father well the father obviously is eternal nobody disputes that as far as i know and so too is the holy ghost but the problem seems to be how can a son be eternal or co-eternal with his father to try and deal with this what people say is this well he was begotten at a point in eternity past and there are problems with that if you beget someone or something in a point in time that means that person came later on came after a point in time if the father is eternal and he has to beget his son in eternity past then the son obviously wasn't eternal the son proceeded from the father in eternity past which again is plausible but is it probable 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The other view is incarnational sonship, that the Word of God concerning the virgin birth, going back to the issue with the cursed kings back in the Old Testament, to deal with that problem, how the Lord had cursed the kings from the tribe of Judah due to their continual sins and apostasy, would have to choose them out a young girl like Mary. The Holy Ghost would come upon the young girl like Mary, would overshadow the young girl and she would give birth to the son of the highest. And that dealt with the problem of the unbelieving apostate Jews back in Jeremiah, while at the same time the Lord was able to honour his own promise that one day a great king would come from the loins of David. And it wasn't Solomon. It wasn't any of the Old Testament greats, as great as they were, it was the Lord Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son. So, if you think of eternal sonship, there are problems with that. How can a father and a son both be co-eternal? How does that work? The moment you speak about a father, you think, okay, the father came first. And if you speak of a son, you say, okay, a son came after the father. You can't really envisage, it's not possible to comprehend how a father and a son can both be the same age or both be equal. It doesn't work that way. Also, the term word is the Logos, the Alpha and the Omega. Logos, we get that word, Logos, or from Logos comes logic. We have to be logical about this. We have to think this thing through. Because a lot of people that are not on our side, that are not Bible-believing Christians, will use this difficult subject to throw back in our faces and ask the question, well, when was Jesus Christ begotten? Look at verse 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Word became flesh. God manifest in the flesh. The Word became flesh. The second member of the Trinity. First John chapter 5 speaks about the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And those three are one. And the Word was made flesh, like the Incarnation, and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Word becomes flesh, and he dwells amongst the Jews. He's now taken on human form. Now, eternal sonship believes that this took place, so too does incarnational sonship. But again, eternal sonship believes that the Lord Jesus Christ was always the Lord Jesus Christ, or that the Lord Jesus Christ always existed as the eternal Son of God. Had no beginning, had no end, but they also have to deal with the subject of when was he begotten? Now for Psalm 2, that was a prophecy given a thousand years before the Lord Jesus Christ, and the context is aimed at David, because the Lord would beget David in a spiritual sense he was already born he was a grown man obviously by that time and the lord would beget him in the sense of making him king and monarch ruler the anointed one but behind david is of course the lord jesus christ jump down to verse 18 no man hath seen god at any time in the context of the father the only begotten son which is in the bosom of the father he hath declared him 
begotten, to give life to, to bring forth. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, speaks about multiple men begetting multiple men. And we know that Abraham gave life to Jacob, or Isaac who gave life to Jacob, and from there all those guys lead up to the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't dispute it, we know what it means. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. So I checked my uh, MacArthur reference Bible last night. I got many reference Bibles, most of which don't really want to uh, tackle this subject. It's too controversial. It's too tricky for them. In fact, if you come across a difficult passage in your Bible and you don't know what it means and you go to your favorite reference Bible, I would suggest the chances are that they don't know what it means either. They will sidestep it. And I checked MacArthur last night, just out of interest, to see what he does with begotten. And surprise, surprise, the Alexandrian cult member, he says, well, it's a mistranslation. It simply means his one and only son. But wasn't Adam called God's son? Aren't angels called God's son? Isn't Israel called God's son? Wasn't David called the firstborn of God from uh, Psalm 89, from memory? This is what these guys do. Because they can't understand it or don't want to address it, they either chuck it out altogether or they change the text. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, the only begotten Son, the only begotten Son, monogenes is the Greek word, mono meaning one, genes meaning a kind, a type. And from uh, genes we get the term generation from, a one of a type a one in a generation, only begotten son, mono, type, generation, person, a unique, one and only person. From Adam onwards, the human race would be created, but Jesus Christ was begotten. Monogenes, no man has seen God at any time, the only begotten son, monogenes son, only begotten son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Go to chapter 3. And of course we all know, verse 16, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So the term begotten is used once again. And I may be wrong when I say this, but I think only the King James Bible uses the word begotten. All of the others say only son, or his one and only son, or his unique son. But that doesn't really help, because Adam, like I say, is called the son of God from Luke chapter 3. Angels are called sons of God. And Ephraim and David is also called the son of God. So you've got to be careful with that. And also from 1 John chapter 3, it is from memory, we are called sons of God in reference to the church. So when you throw out monogenes, which is what they do in the New Bibles, you miss out on Christ's unique nature, God's only begotten Son. God so loved the world, past tense of course, that he gave his only begotten Son. He gave you the Word, and the Word took on human form, and quite possibly became the Son of God, that's incarnational sonship. Or he gave you the Word, which became the Son of God, which was always the Son of God, going back to eternal sonship. The whosoever believeth in him 
no works involved also, should not perish but have everlasting life, appropriate the atonement, a wonderful truth which I never get tired of preaching about. Look at verse 17. For God sent not his Son, for God sent not his Son, for God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He's like an ark, he's like a boat. He's called the captain of our salvation over in the book of Hebrews. Noah built himself a boat, an ark, and they all boarded the boat, the ark. Eight souls, was it? And off they went from A to B, and they were kept safe on the ark. A picture of our salvation, also a picture of those that go through the tribulation and come out the other end safe and sound. But just for the record, I am pre-tribulational, so I don't believe we will be here for the tribulation, but many will be. He that believeth on him is not condemned. Going back to Psalm chapter 2. But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, the monogonese, the only begotten Son of God. When was he begotten? What does it mean to beget him, to give life to him? Was he begotten at his first birth? Yes, of course he was. Was he begotten in time? Yes, of course he was. Was he begotten at the resurrection according to Acts chapter 13? Yes. Beget means to give life. He was begotten the first time, incarnation, and begotten a second time at the resurrection. To beget someone in eternity, to be quite honest, is impossible. Or for him to become the Son of God in eternity past is impossible. If you do that, you really are knocking his deity. To say that the Word of God is eternal with the Father and the spirits, I think gives him full honour, full glory. But to say he became, or he was eternally begotten in eternity past, which is what John MacArthur now believes, is really a fudge. It's not only a compromise, it's a fudge. It makes no sense. Either he was eternally with the Father, and therefore wasn't begotten, which is what they say. Well, begotten doesn't really mean to give life to, and they do what MacArthur says. It's a mistranslation, throw it out. Or they, have to, or they struggle with it. What does it mean? Was he begotten in eternity past? And if he was, how does that work? If he was begotten in eternity past, which they preach, then obviously he's inferior to his father. He's eternally in submission to his father. Or they spiritualize it, which is a cop-out. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So I don't claim to have all the answers. And I'll tell you something else nor does anybody else for that matter either. I was reading a lot of articles over the last uh, few days and it's amazing how many people don't want to touch this. They just want to stay away from it. And not only that, once you come down on one of two views, you're going to please one group and displease another group. I've seen people slam eternal sonship. I've seen people call those that hold to eternal sonship heretics. That's way over the top, and it's uncalled for. And I've seen people that hold to incarnational sonship as also being heretics. And that too is uncalled for. It's over the top. People need to think this thing through carefully. Either today, going back to Psalm 2, means today, or it doesn't. Either begotten means to give life to, or it doesn't. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15. Look at verse uh, 24. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, 
When he shall have put down a rule and all authority and power, going back to Psalm 2, rod of iron, break them in pieces, Revelation 19, Psalm 110, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet, thousand year reign, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, because death still terrifies people, death still cripples people, death isn't something to be celebrated, of course if you're saved, praise the Lord, you've already had your funeral, and death and burial and resurrection with the Lord Jesus Christ. When he got, or when you got saved, you were buried into him, you were raised with him, you were identified with him. You've had your funeral, if you are saved. But death is still an enemy. It's not your friend. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which had put all things under him, under his feet, ruling and reigning. Picture there of a monarch, with the enemies on their knees and he's got his feet on their heads if you will David would do that with his enemies his enemies would be lined up on one occasion Samuel would cut people's fingers off and bury some uh, undesirables deplorables in a cave Joshua would do that as well that was very typical of Old Testament times to take God's enemies before you would kill them and mutilate them, hang them up on a tree until the sun went down and then cut their uh, bodies down. The Jews wouldn't leave the bodies up all night. That's why the Lord Jesus Christ was brought down from the cross. He wasn't left on a cross for longer than he needed to and after six hours he would be dead. The Jews would give their enemies that extra level of dignity for he hath put all things under his feet, but when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted which did put all things under him. This is a prophecy, of course, of the millennial reign. 25, he must reign, hasn't happened yet in a physical sense, only in a spiritual sense. Till he hath put all enemies under his feet, including the devil, who right now hasn't yet been put uh, into the lake of fire. He's still very busy, like a roaring lion going about to devour whom he will, and those that he takes captive, at his own pleasure he does just that. Of course that goes back to the Lord's permissive will. Look at 28. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him, that put all things unto him, that God may be all in all. Another very difficult verse. Rutman says that at the end of time, the Son of God goes back into the Trinity as the Word of God, and is subject to God. And because we are in Christ, we go into the Trinity with Christ. Now, I don't know if I really understand that, let alone accept it. So I know what he's trying to say. But, again, nobody really understands some of these deep subjects. Some guys will take a chance and say, well, I think it could be this, or it could be that. I think he was begotten in eternity past, but he's still a deity, he's still on par with the Father. Others say, no, he was begotten in time. He became the Son of God. And only for a period of time is he in submission to his Father. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So he's been in subjection, submission to his Father. If you go back to eternal sonship since eternity past, or if you go to the incarnational position, he's been in submission, subjection to his Father since his conception, his crucifixion. Right now he's seated at the right hand of the Father. 
But at the end of time, at the end of his millennial reign, the Son shall be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So, have you want to approach this and attempt to try and comprehend this? The Son of God is in submission to his Father, whether from eternity past or in time. He really is a servant of his Father. He is a perfect son, unlike Solomon, who dishonored David, unlike Adam, who would dishonor God Almighty, and the Lord Jesus Christ would volunteer to come, pay for the sins of the world. If that wasn't enough, according to this, at the end of time, at the end of the millennial reign, when we go off into eternity, the Son is going to be subject unto the Father, who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So the word of God, John chapter 1, and also Revelation 19, is obviously the Son of God, and in a way that I do not understand, the Son of God, the Word of God, one person, but with two offices perhaps, or the Word of God and the Son of God, are going to go back into the Trinity and be one with the Father and the Spirit. Then cometh the end, verse 24, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. So, at the end of the thousand years of the Lord Jesus Christ on the earth, he hands the keys, if you will, over to the Father. <coughs> He's ruled and reigned for one literal thousand years. Don't spiritualize it. Don't dismiss it. Don't throw it out because you can't comprehend it. For he must reign. Going back to, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. I'll give you the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thine inheritance. For your glory is my gift from, from the Father to the Son. For he must reign and he will. Now he's reigning in a spiritual sense, but one day in a physical sense. Till he hath put all enemies under his feet. Devil, the Antichrist, the false prophet, the beast. There'll be people that will be born during the thousand years of the Lord Jesus Christ's reign who are going to be problems. And he'll deal with those people. But the last death, of course, of verse 26, that must be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest, it is declared, that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. So he would conquer death. He would taste death for every man. He would become a sin offering. He would cover the sins of the whole world. Because that's what he was born for, to die. He was born to die. He was born to be the son that Adam wasn't. When Adam was tested, he failed. As would Eve, being a type of the church. When Christ was tested, he was successful. Whereas the church hasn't been successful. But going back to the promise made over in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. David's descendants, being a type of the church, are going to be saved. But they'll be whipped, they'll be chastened, chastised. They won't lose their mercy like their place, if you will. Or some would suggest their salvation. Saul didn't lose his salvation, like I say, he lost his kingdom. And when Christians sin, they don't lose their salvation. But they can lose their surroundings, they can lose their lives, they can die prematurely. Going back to some of the greats that died prematurely because of their sins. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, 
Then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So at the end of time, everything goes back to the Father. This goes back to eternal sonship. If everything came from the Father, if the Father generated the Son in eternity past, which is what they hold to, I don't believe that, incidentally, but if that's what happens, then everything goes back to the Father at the end of time. I believe that the Word of God is eternal. Now, I don't know if the Son of God is eternal. There are problems with an eternal Son co-ruling and co-reigning with an eternal Father. It's not impossible, because again, with God, nothing is impossible. But the Word of God, according to 1 John chapter 5, Micah chapter 5, and also elsewhere, Isaiah uh, chapter 9 is eternal. But also the term eternal is problematic to use because eternal obviously doesn't uh, denote a beginning. Eternal means there is no beginning. From everlasting to everlasting thou art God. But for the New Testament, when the word eternal or when everlasting appears in the New Testament, like John 3:16, everlasting life, that starts at a point in time. For example, 17 years ago, I wasn't saved. But 17 years ago, I got saved. So my salvation became everlasting 17 years ago. It began. And when I die and leave this earth, I'll be forever with the Lord because I have everlasting life. It will never end. But eternal, going back to eternal sonship, has no beginning. And eternal, like at the end of the world, from eternity to eternity, has no ending. Somebody once said this, there was a time when you didn't exist, but there'll be a time when you never cease to exist. I like that. A lot of truth in that. There was a time that I wasn't saved, didn't have everlasting life, but there was a time when I got saved and I received everlasting life. So it is difficult when you try and work out eternal or everlasting. Jesus Christ is called the everlasting Father which, strictly speaking, deals with him receiving his kingdom in time. Being made the Messiah in time. Declared to be the Son of God with power and authority. Romans chapter 1. So I think we will close it there for now. I may return and do one final video trying to fully comprehend the real deep things of the Lord, how to delineate between the Word and the Son. Maybe we can't, I don't know, uh, what it really means for the Son to be begotten. Again, if you approach this in a practical sense, you have to accept that he was begotten in time, not before time, and that's what I believe. Was he always a Son of God? Possibly. I won't say that he wasn't. I won't condemn those that say that he was, and I won't condemn those that say that he wasn't. I'm aware that there are Hebrew idioms that are used throughout the entire Bible, like Psalm chapter 2, which I spent a lot of time looking at. Thou art my son, you are my son, like right now. But on top of that, this day have I begotten thee. Now, David, you are my king. <clears throat> now, David, you are the Messiah in a spiritual sense because David was anointed. Another subject. He was a priest, he was a prophet, he was a king. He was anointed. He was a type of Christ. Not the Christ, of course, but a type of Christ with a lowercase c, whereas the Lord Jesus Christ was the Christ the Messiah, the King of Israel, the Saviour of the Church. So, dealing with the Lord's Messiahship, you could argue from Psalm 2, cross-reference that back to John 1, 
John 3, Acts chapter 14 and elsewhere, and also from Hebrews chapter 1, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten. It could be in reference to him coming of age and becoming the Messiah of Israel. That is possible, that's plausible. And I will you know, put that on record. That's one way of dealing with this difficult subject. But an eternal son begotten in eternity past, as eternal sonship people hold to, doesn't really make much sense to me. The word being eternal, yes, I'll, I'll go with that. And the Father being eternal, absolutely, he has to be. And so too is the Holy Ghost, I have no problem with that. But the Son being eternal makes no sense to me. And if you hold to that position, then you have to come to the conclusion that the Lord Jesus Christ would be inferior to his Father, which I reject, and has always been in submission to his Father, which I also reject. He became obedient to his Father in time, and 1 Corinthians 15 again would appear to go back into submission and subjection to his father in a way that I don't quite understand. Not so much as a servant, I don't think, but in a way that we don't really understand because we haven't got anything else to go to, to cross-reference this. Incarnational sonship makes a bit more sense, but that's also problematic because if he became the son of God at the incarnation, how does that deal with his deity? How would we understand his deity? How does God become God? The New Bibles say that... Uh, God begot a God. John 1.18 You can't have a begotten God. You can have a son that was begotten in time. But for God to beget a God is another very difficult subject and it's problematic and it's not really something I want to be associated with. So we'll hold it there for now. It's a fifthly cold day. I think we've covered quite a lot of ground for this video and I will perhaps come back up next week and do video number eight looking at one more time the relationship between the Father and the Son, what that really means, how we understand it as finite beings living in time. As Paul says, we look through a uh, broken glass, a cloudy glass, not very, clear, not very clear glass, but one day we will see the Lord face to face. We will have full understanding of all these things. So let's leave it there. And uh, may the Lord bless you all in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.